All right, so today we are going to be talking about how Jesus grows a community. How Jesus grows a community. So we've been kind of camped on these things, loving God, loving others, making disciples. We haven't really got to part three yet, but we'll get there. So this is about how Jesus grows a community. So it's kind of neat. So I'm coaching soccer with uh, Madeline, my youngest, four or five-year-olds, those dead kids, those dead, those age kids. And it is so cute how we're building a little community. Um, so, you know, at halftime, they'll get their little snacks, and they'll come on and, and sit down, and they'll just kind of laugh and joke and, you know, poke fun at me and stuff like that. And <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a fun, cute little thing to see these little kids just making their own little community, and the parents are having fun with it and stuff like that. I just, I just act like it's VBS. That's what I do. And I don't know. I think, that, uh, I think that the parents are starting to think that I'm entertainment for them, but that's okay. So I just have fun with the kids. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4. So feel free to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And while you're getting there, I'm just going to read real quick Luke 3, 4 through 6. So we're going to be in Luke 4, 18 through 19, but just if you turn left by one chapter, Luke 3, 4 through 6, I'm just going to read that. This is John the Baptist. Um, this is about John the Baptist. He says, he, uh, the, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So it's interesting. So. You know, why is it that does God not like mountains? Does he not like valleys? Is that what's going on here? That valleys are going to be filled and the mountains are going to be brought low? What's the deal with that? Does God really, you know, despise the landscape he made? No, no, no. It has nothing to do with that. This is about community. It's about community. It's about making people equal. It's about, you know, the rich and powerful in this world are kind of like the mountains. And the poor and oppressed in this world are like the valleys. And when the people of God come together, when Jesus builds a community... There's no rich and powerful, and there's no poor and oppressed. He makes everybody equal because he values all of his children the same amount. He's just not pleased when, you know, these lorded over those or those type of things, and so he makes everybody equal, and that just help, that just establishes community. The military does that. That's why they give everybody the same haircut, the same clothes, those type of things. So it doesn't matter where you came from. You're all equal there. So that's kind of a... that's. That's how Jesus builds community. That's the start of it. So Luke 4, 18 through 19. We're just going to go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we're going to dissect it a little bit. <clears throat> so this is Jesus' mission, okay? This is how he kicked off his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's so much cool stuff in here. We're going to unpack it a little bit, okay? So, um, anyway, a lot of people who, who you know don't know Jesus, they kind of cringe at the name of Jesus. You know, I wear my Jesus t-shirts because I'm like, you know what? We need to tell this, this place about Jesus. So I do that, and I see people like, you know, cringe, and they kind of look away, and when we did the gift wrapping at Christmas, you know, parents would kind of like cover their kids' eyes so they didn't see, you know, the Jesus name and stuff like that. 
because sometimes I don't know why, but people seem to think Jesus is like about oppressing, you know, equal rights or something, or judging people or ruining lives or something. But notice how many out of Jesus' mission, how many of these words are like put down kind of words? Do you see any? Like put down, tear down, destroy kind of words, you know, crush, demean, nothing like that. Every single thing in Jesus' mission is to build people up. Amen. Everything is to build people up. So Jesus said, I am not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said that a couple of times. He'll come later to judge the world, but right now it's this period of time that's just so awesome. It's so wonderful and beautiful. It's, 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 it's the salvation time. It's really cool. We'll talk about that. So he says, I have not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So that, that was when Peter was saying, they don't agree with us. They're not going to host us in their town. Let's call down fire from heaven from them. Let's destroy their lives, right? And Jesus said, you don't even get it. You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, right? So you could be the most miserable wretch on the face of the planet, and Jesus is not going to come and destroy you. That's not his goal. Nothing in his mission is to tear down or to oppress or to beat up or anything like that. That's the devil's job. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus doesn't do any of the devil's job. Jesus comes to build up, to give life, to give hope, to give freedom. It is, it is really neat. So now is the time for salvation. So what did Jesus come to do? We're going to start taking it apart now. He was anointed, which means basically, you know, to, to pour oil on the head. Basically, it was, it was symbolic of being prepared, called, and equipped. And so you're given a task, maybe kind of like the military. You're given a task. You're, you're trained to do the task. You know, you're told to do the task. You're given all the equipment you need to do the task, and then you go out and you do the task. And you're going to be successful because you've been prepared, called, and equipped to do it. That's what Jesus was anointed to do. He was prepared, called, and equipped to do all of these things here. So to preach the gospel to the poor. But you know what? You might be thinking, hey, I'm not poor. I've got assets. I've got a house. I've got a bank account. You know, I've got a car, a couple cars, whatever. I'm not poor. This isn't to me. Wrong. Jesus isn't talking about money in the bank. He's talking about poverty more broadly. Right? Poverty of spirit. Poverty of emotion. Poverty of relationships, those type of things. Because money is nothing to God. It means nothing to him. That is, that is so tertiary. That's not even on his radar of something to care about. So, so Jesus gives several subcategories of poverty here. And so the thing is, everybody is poor in some, in some way. Yep. No matter how much money you have in the bank, no matter how high you up are on the totem pole of you know, politics or Hollywood or fame or fortune or sports or whatever, Everybody is poor in some respect. And so Jesus goes through several of these right here. So brokenhearted. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and then the subcategories. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's emotional and relational poverty. Right? So these ver that verse, by the way, is not in some Bibles. It should be. It's, in, it's been in God's Bible for 2,000 years, but recently some, you know, some scholars decided it shouldn't be there. It should be there. So Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. And so if you're a human, then you've had relationships with other people. And if you've had relationships with other people, then you've been hurt. You've offered your heart, your whole heart full of love to a parent, a friend, a spouse, or you know whoever, 
and expected them to reciprocate in love. You trusted them to respond in love, and they didn't. Instead, what it feels like is they took your heart and they like threw it on the ground and stomped on it, jumped up and down on it, and spit, that kind of thing. And you haven't felt respected, honored, valued. You didn't feel like they loved you or cared about you. And it hurt. It hurt so bad. And that was the first time. And then you, over a couple of years, you got over it a little bit, and you were able to go ahead and reach out to somebody else and offer love to them, to open up your heart to show love to them. And you expected to, you hoped to receive love back, and you know what, that ha- the same thing happened there too. You felt like they got, your heart got crushed again. So your heart was broken in a couple pieces, and then it was broken again in some more pieces. Later it was broken again in some more pieces. It's kind of like, kind of like this. So if this cup is your heart, okay, this represents your capacity to love, okay? That's your capacity to love. By the way, it's easy for a child to love because, you know, they haven't been hurt. They haven't been tainted by this, you know, pain that, that when you experience it, then you isolate yourself a little bit more. You know, each time you get hurt, you isolate yourself more and you put up more emotional walls and barricades to protect yourself because, you know what, when you have a broken arm it hurts a lot it, if your arm's not broken you can run all day and have no problems right you could kick you know hit kick throw run you know you could punch you could do all sorts of stuff with your arm but when your arm is broken it is so tender that even the slightest jarring really brings a lot of pain and it's the same thing with your heart and so the more your heart gets hurt gets broken the more you protect it the more you keep people away from it so they can't touch it anymore so it can't get broken anymore so it won't get stepped on anymore. So you keep other people emotionally distant. That's not the kind of relationship that God wants with you. That's not the kind of community that God wants to build with you know, you and me, with us, with each other. That's, that's not the kind of community that he wants. Because when we're like that, then we can't love other people. Love God, love others, and make disciples. So if we're putting up barricades and boundaries, we can't, we can't show love, right? It's hurt, hurt people, hurt people. So we're all running around as hurt people and hurting other people. And being hurt in return, it's this endless cycle, and everybody's paying the price by becoming their own silo, distancing themselves for, you know, from people who could hurt them. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing that, right? I go to work. Everybody's doing it. You know, you walk around the mall. Everybody's doing it. That's not emotional health. That's a broken heart, and it's resistant to community. But Jesus sees your pain. Jesus sees that. He knows what you've been through. And he can take those broken pieces. So, so I want to show so I gotta show you this. This is really cool. Okay. So <clears throat> this cup is like your heart, and it represents your capacity to love. Okay? So when you are a child, okay. By the way, this, right, this pitcher of water is God's love. So what he does is he pours his love into you, just like that. And now you're full of love. And then you can take that love and give it to the people who are around you. Because that's what God wants you to do. Love others. So that's what you can do. And then when you're a child, that is so easy. You receive God's love. You give out God's love. It is just easy to do, right? But as time goes on, this is what happens. You get hurt. And something breaks in your heart. 
and hurt again. Something breaks in your heart again. And all these pieces of the cup get broken off one by one. Another relationship, hurt, broken, and pretty soon, this is what your cup looks like. There's not much there that can hold water, right? So you try. God tries to pour water in there and you know, pour it out. So I've got a question for you. Are you going to be able to love very much when your heart's broken? You're not going to be able to love very much, right? Is it your fault? Does God say like, you are such an evil person because you can't show love? Does God do that? No. no. He says, oh man, I can see why you're having a hard time loving people. You know what I need to do? I need to fix that. You're, he understands that you're not going to be able to pour out a whole lot of love until you are mended, till you're restored, till you're whole. And so that's what he does. So Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. And this is what he does. You see this? This is a cup that looked pretty similar to that cup. But it's like this. Jesus came along. I did it with this cup. And this, this is what Jesus does with our hearts. He comes along and he picks up this piece. And he puts it back. He picks up this piece and puts it back. And this piece. And he takes those pieces. And he mends you back together. So this cup was broken. It really was. I taped it together. But you know what? Now, it can hold water and it can be a blessing to other people. It can show love to other people. That's what God does. He takes broken hearts and puts them back together. He mends them. He doesn't get angry that they can't show love. He mends them so they can show love. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. So, when I was a kid, I wanted a pair of moccasins. I was like, I, you know, I loved running around, like pretending like I was a Cherokee, Native American, you know, or Cheyenne. That was just the coolest thing for me. And I wanted some moccasins. But we, were, we didn't have money for moccasins. But my grandma had taught me how to sew on a sewing machine. And we had some old pairs of ragged jeans. So you know what I did? I came up with a pattern. And I got those, you know, jeans. And I sewed them together. And I made myself some moccasins. And I sported those around the neighborhood. They were really cool. I was really proud of my moccasins. They were waterproof on bottom. They were better than store-bought because I put plastic on bottom so I could, like, run through the water, right? This was cool stuff. Knee-high moccasins. They were cool. Others may look at you and see junk. Useless junk. It's not worth their time or attention or love or care. Just like the old pairs of ragged jeans. But I looked at those jeans and I saw moccasins. And God looks at your life and he sees the makings of greatness. He can take your life and fashion it to something so beautiful, so useful, so wonderful. He just assembles the pieces together. He mends you and gives you wholeness. And, you're, and, and it makes you useful again and beautiful again. He loves to do that. All those pieces that you're like clutching and protecting from people around you, he can put it all back together. He's not ineffective at this. He's not unskilled at healing, mending broken hearts. He does it all the time. So why would he do that? Why, why would he mend your heart back together? Because he loves you. He loves to see his kids rejoicing. Just like, imagine like a big green field 
and you know, with flowers in it, and your kids like running around just rejoicing in hope and life and everything in the world is going well for him, that's what he wants for you. Doesn't mean everything will go well for for you, but what it means is he wants you so whole that that's what that's what life feels like for you, right? No matter what's going on around you, you're in joy. He wants to see you restored to wholeness, so you can love and be loved again. Just to see you run the race of life like the racehorse he created you to be. That would be glorious in his eyes. That's God's moccasins. That's what he wants to see. That would make him beam with joy, is to see you run with delight and hope and life in this world. So if, if you have a broken heart, ask Jesus to pick up the pieces for you. He came for that. He's anointed to do that. He is really, really good at it. He'll touch some deep wounds, but you can trust him. And with a healed heart, you won't have to keep up your guard anymore. Instead, you'll be free to love and be loved, to love others, to be part of just a growing community of love, because Jesus was sent to heal your broken heart. He also came to proclaim liberty to the captives. So a captive is like a POW. It's somebody that's forced to live in a land that's not their own, a land that they don't want to be in, right? A place that, you know, against their will. So in the Old Testament, um, you know, the, is, the Israelites were broken up into two, you know, kingdoms, basically the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. So the northern kingdom Israel, they were conquered by Assyria, and Assyria picked them up and brought them out. They, for, they forced marched them out of their land and spread them out all over the place in Assyria, and they never, ever returned. But the southern kingdom, Judah, they were conquered by Babylon. Babylon did the same thing. They, they, they forced marched them to, to Babylon, almost all of them anyway, and to live in captivity in Babylon. So it was like, you, you can live here and you can have a job and all that kind of stuff, but you cannot leave. So, and then 70 years later, the king at the time, Cyrus, king of Persia, he made a proclamation. And so I'll read that to you. That's from Ezra. We're going to keep parked in Luke, but I'll just read this to you real quick. It says, this is this was the king's proclamation. The Lord God has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, because he is God, which is in Jerusalem. And at the word of the king, the king said, you can go if you want to. That's, that, that's what he said. You can go if you want to with my blessing, go build the temple. 42,360 people moved from Jerusalem, moved from Babylon to Jerusalem from captivity. And you know what? They had, they had huge joy while they were doing it. I'm sure they were singing the songs of Zion all along the way. Great rejoicing, right? Because after you've been forced marched to a land that's not your own, forced to live as a POW somewhere where you don't want to live, when you finally get your chance to return, that would be amazing. So I saw this documentary about John McCain. I think he was in, um, you know, a POW in Vietnam for I think ten years, something like that. It was a really long time. And so when they were finally released, um, if I if I got the story right, they didn't even talk to each other. You know, they got on a van in silence, pretty much. They went to the airplane in silence. They got on the airplane in silence. They sat down in seats in silence. Because nobody could believe what was happening, really. Like, what's going to happen? This is going to get turned around at some point. You know, they're going to come and send us back. So we're not going to get too excited. 
And then the plane went down the runway, and as soon as the wheels lifted off the ground, they began singing the Star Spangled Banner. And I'm sure there was not one dry eye on the plane. They were rescued. Amen. So here's the question. Are, do you find yourself living in a situation, actions, habits, circumstances that you don't want? Guess what? God's got better things for you than that then. That's called captivity. Things that you that you can't seem to get free of. Hey, today's your day. Jesus proclaims freedom for the captives. Freedom from the captives. So, <clears throat> okay, so the interesting thing about this is he doesn't force freedom for the captives. He proclaims freedom for the captives. And so King uh, Cyrus in Babylon, he said, anybody who wants to go, you can go. He didn't kick them out. He didn't send them out. Like he didn't force them to leave. He said, if you want freedom from here, you can go. That's what Jesus does. But since it's the word of the king, then it is so authoritative that that's all it takes. The king of glory says you are free, then you are free to go. And so then you just get up and, and you go. So that's where this illustration comes into it. So this is a, it looks like a birdhouse, right? It's actually a bird feeder. Um, but anyway, so it looks like a birdhouse, right? Okay. So imagine a little bird in there, and we go ahead and we proclaim freedom for the bird, right? Okay, so the bird's in there. He's living in there. Um, there's not a whole lot of room. You know, where does he go potty at? I don't know. It's probably just building up in the bottom. Um, probably it's not a real, you know, it's kind of a stinky place, probably, stuff like that. So that's, what, that's the atmosphere that the bird's living in right now. And so we say, okay, bird, you can go in freedom now. We take the top off. What would you think of the bird if he stayed in there? Like, come on, pal, what's the problem? <laughs> Don't you, like, want to go out to fresh air and freedom and, you know, flap your wings and fly and stuff? So when God proclaims liberty for the captives, that's what he does. He takes the top off, and so we can leave if we want to. We can also stay in our junk, but we can leave. Amen. He makes us able to leave. He proclaims, he proclaims freedom from the captives. He proclaims it. That's what he does. So, <clears throat> so in Matthew it says that he, we, um, this is the angel talking to Joseph. You'll call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, because he will save his people from their sin. That's the biggest thing that Jesus does. Saves us from, from our sin, right? So how? By purchasing our freedom, he died on the cross to pay this price that was so big for my salvation, for your salvation, that we could never pay it. He purchased our freedom, and then he proclaimed our freedom. That's what it takes. You can't proclaim it if you don't purchase it. So he purchased it first, and he proclaimed it. So by going to the cross for us, he secured our redemption, right? And so what that means is purchase from the slave market of sin, totally set free, never to be sold again. That lid will never go back on the cage of your life again. You can stay in there if you want to, but the lid won't go back on. So in Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He paid our debt to set us free, right? He purchased our freedom, then he proclaimed our liberty, our freedom. So the, so, so the neat thing is, 
For it's God who works, this is verse in Philippians, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So what happens is, after we sit in some stinkiness for a while, then God works in our heart and we say, you know what? I think I want to get out of that stinkiness. That's God working in us, both to will of his you know, will and to do according to his good pleasure. If he kicked us out or forced us out, then that's kind of like another captivity, but he, he leads us out. Like he said, you know, he, 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 he you know, coerces us out to come on out, right, to, 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 to better things, right, to live differently. So he gives us the desire. Okay, so anyway, that's, that's, just a, that's just a little bit about that. So how do we get there, right? Okay, there's this place in Romans where Paul says, look, I've been trying and trying. How am I going to do that, right? And then he ends up by saying, oh, wretched man. And Paul's saying, no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to, oh, I can't seem to kick the habits, right? Okay. So then he says, "Oh wretched man, who that I am, who, or who I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's secret to, to of the overcoming life is to don't focus or concentrate on what you're not supposed to do, or even try to do what you're supposed to do. Instead, focus and concentrate on Jesus. Build your walk with Him. Focus on Him. Draw near to Him. Hold on to Jesus. Get close to Jesus and stay there. And then old habits will be falling off your back like water off a duck's back, right? Then and then pretty soon you'll look back and you'll be like, "Hey, man, I've been overcoming those things. I didn't having such a fun time with Jesus. I didn't even realize it, right?" So focus on Jesus, and your body of you know actions will fall into line. So Jesus grows his community by proclaiming freedom for the captives, right? So he's the king over all kings, and what he says goes. It really does, and all the armies of hell cannot stop you. Because the king of glory is your redeemer. So he's sent to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. So, can I get a volunteer? Is there a volunteer out there that come on up? Okay. Okay, can I get three volunteers? One, two, three. Okay. So Jesus caused the physically blind to see, right? He gave them sight, but he also gave sight to the spiritually blind. People who were spiritually blind. So we're going to talk about what that is. So I made these little glasses. And so these are like, you know, physical, these are like glasses that you cannot see through. Okay. So we could go ahead and put them on. We'll put them on Ariel. Okay. Can you see out of those? How many fingers am I holding up? Okay. Not bad. <laughs> Completely wrong, but good try. <laughs> okay, and how about you go ahead and pass it and see if you guys can see through them, okay? Can you see anything? No. No, okay. How about, how about you? Can you see anything? So, what if we had all three of them with these glasses on, and they were all telling each other, hey, follow me, this is the way to get out of the movie theater, over here. And they'd, they'd bump into that corner, and then they'd go this way, and they'd bump up there, and then they'd bump over here, and then they'd keep following each other and bumping, bumping, all, all, like all over the place, right? So spiritual sight is kind of like an all-or-nothing thing. It's not like, oh, I've got 20-40 spiritual vision, not quite 20-20, but still pretty good. You know, it's not that. It's, it's like these glasses. It's like an all-or-nothing thing, right? And so what's it based on? It's based on who you believe Jesus is. Isn't that easy? It's like, that like, that like pulls it all together, right? So um, <clears throat> when you have spiritual sight, it's like with these glasses, go and put them on. When you're spiritually blind, 
then you can't see anything spiritually. Spiritual things are so non-existent to you. They're not in your perspective anywhere. And then Jesus comes along, or God the Father comes along, and takes him off of you. And then, and then you can see. And then you can see completely everything, right? That's the idea. Okay, so hang tight, you guys. Okay. So, and it's all about who do you believe in. So, there's a lot of gurus that are out there today, Deepak Chopra, those kind of, those kind of guys that, are, that, are, that have these, these, you know, spiritual blinders on, and they're walking around bumping into everything, you know, relationally and emotionally and, you know, psychologically, all these things. They're bumping around everywhere saying, hey, follow me, everybody. And they don't have spiritual light. Why? Because Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. That's in John 8. Right? So imagine this whole cadre of blind people walking around around here, bumping into stuff. That's what's going on in this world to anybody who doesn't believe that Jesus is He. Who's He? The Son of God and Savior of the world. That's the one key to spiritual life. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. Without that key, there is no spiritual light. And it's no use to argue with people about who Jesus is because it can't be reasoned out philosophically on who he is and it can't be studied out from the scriptures. I mean, the Pharisees spent their entire lives memorizing the Old Testament and they couldn't figure out who Jesus was. Actually, to be honest with you, they could figure out who Jesus was and they rejected him. But the point is just, you know, trying to argue with people or study it out from the scriptures without God revealing it to you, you're never going to figure it out. So. Jesus' identity can only be revealed. God the Father takes off people's blinders, right? So Nathaniel, upon meeting Jesus, says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, blessed are you because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Pontius Pilate said, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you asking this from yourself, or are you asking this because somebody somebody told you about that? Jesus was asking for Pilate's source of information. Where did you get this information from? Because it because if it comes from you, Pilate, then you heard from God. If it comes from other people, then it's just hearsay for you. It's nothing, right? Then Thomas put his fingers into Jesus' hands and, and, and into his side, and he says, "My Lord and my God," which, by the way, is in every single Greek manuscript that there is. There is not even one deviation, one variant in that verse. Not even one in any Greek manuscript. My Lord and my God. People have a lot of concoctions, but Jesus' true identity can only be revealed by God the Father. Without that, complete darkness. Without, without knowing who Jesus is, without the Father revealing the identity of his Son, there's only darkness. So Jesus grows his community by revealing his identity to spiritually blind people and giving them sight. Awesome. Thanks for helping. Okay, go ahead and sit down. Thank you. Can we have a hand for them? <clears throat> so Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So the Oxford Dictionary for oppressed, it means to keep someone in subservience and hardship, especially by the unjust exercise of authority. Yeah. Authority gone wry. Okay? gone awry. Number two, to cause somebody to feel distressed, anxious, or uncomfortable. Have you ever felt like you're like under somebody's thumb? Like like you're distressed, anxious, and uncomfortable? You know, that kind of thing? I have. I think I grew up a lot that way. But anyway, so if there's something that I've learned just by watching people's lives, it's it's that God hates oppression. Yeah. He like hates it. Hates, hates it. Right? He hates it when people lords, lord things over others. 
uh, causing life to be more difficult than it needs to be or, you know, distress, anguish, uncomfortable. Uh, even if it's done by somebody who's in authority, he just really dislikes it a lot. So, and I've also noticed that in any conflict, um, there's always like the oppressor and the oppressed. And it doesn't matter how toe-to-toe they go, there's always somebody who walks away more hurt than the other one and the other, and, and the other one who, you know, kind of beats her chest a little bit, you know, the, to say, I'm, you know, in, 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 you know, kind of enjoys um, overcoming for, you know, the other person. So there's always one person who's advancing or escalating the conflict for their own gain, for their own purpose, for their own goal in mind, and it happens at the expense of others. I've seen that happen a lot. And sometimes it's hard to tell who's who in a situation because they can both, you know, look or act the same way. But you know what? God knows who's who. He sees the heart. He knows who it is who's, who's you know, pushing hard to get their agenda versus who's the one who's just getting hurt along the way. He, he's the one who sees, right? We don't know that always, but God does know that because God sees everyone's heart. And so he knows who's in the greater emotional distress. And so this is like Hagar who said, um, he is the God who sees. He sees me where I'm at. He sees what's happened to me, all this wrong that's happened to me. She was wronged. God sees those things. And when someone's heart begins um, to, you know, to be hurt like that, when somebody is oppressed, then God doesn't just proclaim freedom for them and say, go ahead and get out of your situation if you want to. No, no, no. He just flat out comes and rescues them. That's why it says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You know, the proclamation stuff isn't, isn't in this one. He just comes and does it. And he's always on the side of the oppressed. He always is. He steps in and does two things. He doesn't proclaim freedom, but he sets, he sets them free. Why? Because you're a child of God, right? And he doesn't like it when his kids get messed with. You know, if I was on the soccer field and there was a kid out there who, you know, every time he walked by Madeline, he tripped her and pushed her and kicked her and, you know, elbowed her and kicked her in the shins some more and stuff like that. I would be like, you know what? We, we're going we're gonna to do some, we're going to deal with this. <laughs> and that's what God does. He doesn't want you to get beat up. So he steps in. He's going to step in and protect, right? He doesn't like it when his kids are oppressed. Yeah, there's just so many times that I've seen that where it's like, you know, this oppression thing, you know, is happening. And from the outside, you may not be able to tell, but oppressed, oppressor. And then pretty soon God steps in and he just like picks up the, the one who's being hurt in, in the situation. He like picks him up, rescues him, sets him apart from the other, the other person. Why? Because now they need some space. They need some, you know, some area to be able to be made whole again. You can't have joy when you're around the person that's been kicking you for, you know, a while. So he picks you up and sets you in a, in a separate place and so you can grow in love and joy, right? And I've seen so many people who God has picked up out of a situation like that, and they've become highly successful in work or family or life, and they've got joy because God saw their heart. He knew what was going on between them and the other person, and that they were trying to do everything right, but they were having their hearts just stepped on over and over again. And finally God said, I've had enough. I'm going to rescue you out of that. I'm going to put you over here, and I'm going to bless the snot out of you while you're over here because I want to see you have life and have joy. And then he comes along and brings success in all, in all sorts of measures. It's, it's, it's awful that it has to happen, but God steps in at the right time when he needs to happen. He ends the oppressive situation. Jesus sets at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what he says. So he, Jesus grows his communion by putting an end to oppressors, by setting the oppressed free. And he builds up and raises up and lifts up the oppressed. And um, so they could bounce back. And then the last part is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, right? 
And so what that what that is 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 um, basically it's a time which God has pleasure in, a time which He Himself has chosen. So the acceptable year of the Lord, a year is just this really long period of time. And so this is the period of time since Jesus came all the way until now for two thousand years. This is the time that God loves the most out of all of history is this time right now because it's like. Okay, it's, it's kind of like this. Imagine every three, it, the numbers are probably something like this. In the world, there's probably about every three seconds somebody comes to faith in Christ Jesus. And so every time that happens, there's this party that goes on in heaven. And so imagine one of those telethons where every time the phone rings, they, everybody shouts in joy because they're getting more money. And so they're like, oh, another phone rang. That's more, you know, we're, we're cha-ching, cha-ching, cha That's what's going on in heaven. It's been happening for 2,000 years. All the angels rejoice. This is like a continual party that just doesn't stop. Every three seconds, another cha-ching. Every three seconds, another cha-ching. It just keeps happening. God loves this time, right? Right now is the acceptable year of the Lord, the time that he just loves, loves, loves. Continual party in heaven. Jesus said, I have not come to judge the world but to save the world, right? Jesus didn't send anybody away who wanted, like who wanted to follow. He'd tell them the price, the cost of following him, and he'd sometimes he'd send them to be missionaries. But if you wanted to come and follow Jesus and learn at his feet, then you are free to do that, and you're still free to do that. It's interesting. Jesus was never ashamed to associate with sinners, but so many times today, you know, we can be ashamed to associate with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Like, he lowers himself from the stratosphere of heaven to be pals with us. Amen. And we don't return the favor by being in this, you know, corrupt world and, you know, showing people that we're pals with him. That's just really something I thought. He's the great king, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the one who's, who spoke and the whole universe came into existence. Why? Because that's what it means. Universe. One spoken sentence. When he did that, the whole universe happened, right? And he's not ashamed to associate with us. He is not ashamed to associate with you. Jesus loves you. And he has done such great things for you. And he'll keep doing them if whatever you need. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, so to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and where did the glasses go? Okay. And recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is a really great time that we're in. And I'm just excited for whatever God's going to do because I just believe God's going to start doing some cool things now. So I'm gonna, let's go ahead and pray. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you. We are so thankful for um, your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. We're so thankful for your love for us. Thank you for the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. Thank you that there's not, a, not an ounce, not, a, not a, you know, a twinge of judgment in what he came to do. But he came to set, just set, set us free, to give us freedom, to give us hope and life and joy and blessing and sight. Yes. And Lord, thank you for all that you've purchased for us. Help us to walk in it. Help us to just be near you. Help us to set our sights and our focus on Jesus and just delight in you um, as we walk through this world. Thank you for wanting to be our friends. We just ask that you would bless everyone here today, that you would... Um, just speak your word of love and life throughout this week. Uh, just show everyone how much you love them. And um, thank you for doing that. 
Bless each one as we go. Help us through this week. There's things that are ahead of us that we need your help with, Heavenly Father. We can't do it without you. We're asking for your help. So please help every one of us. Yes, Lord. We praise you. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.